From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. There's no question that Russia's forcible transfer thousands of Ukrainian children to areas under its control during this wartime, assigning them, forcibly assigning them Russian citizenship, forcibly adopting them into Russian families and creating obstacles for their reunification with their parents and homeland are war crimes. Welcome back to the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Tens of thousands of Ukrainian children have been abducted by Russia since the invasion in February 2022. Founder of Miami Law's Children and Youth Law Clinic, Bernard Perlmutter, weighs in on the efforts to have the children returned. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Bernie. Good morning. So nice to have you back. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you for inviting me. Of course, of course. So Russia claims to have saved, I'm making air quotes here, 700,000 abandoned and orphaned children from the conflict zones. U.S. and Ukrainian officials put that number of children forcibly deported at over 20,000, whatever the number. Does this fall under war crimes? Well, Catherine, there's no question that Russia's forcible transfer thousands of Ukrainian children to areas under its control during this wartime, assigning them, forcibly assigning them Russian citizenship, forcibly adopting them into Russian families and creating obstacles for their reunification with their parents and homeland are war crimes. That is what the UN, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, has stated with respect to just the deportations of Ukrainian children. And as many of listeners are aware, the International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin, who explicitly supports the forcible adoptions by signing legislation to facilitate them. And this is the first time that the ICC, this court, has issued an arrest warrant against the leader of a permanent member of the UN Security Council, but it is amply justified. And there's also another warrant that's been issued uh, against Russia's so-called, air quotes, children's rights commissioner, who's also been charged by the ICC with these war crimes. And she's also been sanctioned by the US, the European Union, the UK, Canada, and Australia. So tell me how that process works. An arrest warrant happens. It's not like here where they're going to go find, you know, Catherine Skip and drag her into jail. What kind of timeline is that? I don't know precisely the timeline, but I can tell you about the idea of space, uh, which is that uh, both Putin and um, and uh, the uh, children's uh, ombudsman for right. uh, for for Russia, Russian children, are uh, persona non grata in anywhere outside of maybe Russia, China, and North Korea. If they attempt to go to a diplomatic uh, or other uh, multilateral uh, event outside of these safe zones, they are going to be subject to uh, 
just like Slobodan Milosevic was uh, after the Serbian conflict ended, uh, to be su- subject to being tried uh, in a in the International Criminal Court. So that leads me to my next question, which sadly, this kind of crime isn't really new to war. The Nazis, the recruitment of child soldiers in the Congo, the heinous list goes on and on. So what have we learned about the application of law to punish oppressors and return the children to their country of origin? Well, uh, Putin and his loyalists have promoted a narrative that flouts the rules of international law. They are portraying themselves as the saviors uh, of the children in the war zones, evacuating them using anodyne terminology of that sort. But while they're doing that, they're also twisting facts. They're twisting history in the most cynical and Orwellian terms. You know, Russia started transferring children from the Ukrainian territories a decade ago after the invasion of Crimea. Um, And then they started the large scale uh, program of evacuating supposed orphans from occupied territories in the Ukraine. Then they started to force deportations and, you know, looking for orphans and orphanages, uh, scouting them out. And, you know, the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights um, in Montreal has said that there are reasonable grounds to conclude that Russia is in breach of at least two articles of the 1948 Genocide Convention, other international uh, NGOs and uh, organizations associated with the United Nations uh, also say that the displacement of these children, maybe as many as two thirds of Ukrainians' children, they are clearly examples of, of genocide against the people of Ukraine. To answer your question, we have learned, we in the other side of this conflict have learned some lessons from these past examples that you cited, you know, the Nazis, uh, you know, child soldiers, and maybe in the Congo, Russia has learned nothing from prior punishments um, of similar acts of oppression committed by an invading country against the children of another country in wartime. If Russia and its leaders are not held to account, as the ICC prosecutor has said, uh, treating children as the spoils of war uh, without Accountability will set an awful precedent for future acts of invasion and predation against another nation's families and children. So what's the end goal for the Russians? Well, it is a complex uh, end goal, I think, comes out of the of the mind and the head of, of, of Vladimir Putin himself. Um, when I think about what's going on, especially specifically with respect to the treatment of children of Ukrainian parents and families. I look to folks who really know and have investigated these facts with great knowledge and great insight. One of the people whose ideas and research have shaped my own thinking is Timothy Snyder, who's the Yale historian and genocide scholar who's familiar with these events. And he he has, uh, you know, a, a book of his called The Roads to Unfreedom, his blog, other places where he posts ideas um, suggest to me that um, there's a certain logic, a perverse logic in Putin's mind. And it, he says, it does not matter. And I'm quoting him from a recent uh, posting of his. It does not matter what people believe or how people understand their own past. It is he referring to Putin who decides which souls are bound to which other souls. Other views have no place in nature, 
because they arose from events which in his story, Putin's story, should never have happened. His view must govern the past, which requires violence in the present, which he calls genocide. And he's really denied the existence of a Ukrainian nation, a Ukrainian people, as recently, as most recently, with his ridiculous interview conducted by uh, Tucker Carlson, promulgates these preposterous anti-historical views about Russia and relationship to Ukraine. We have, thankfully, people like Timothy Snyder to completely eviscerate the anti-historical mythology. He calls it the genocide myth that's uh, that's being put out by, by Putin and his loyalists with respect to the state in the nationhood, in the language identity, and the historical identity of Ukraine vis-a-vis Russia or versus Russia. Also, it must be incredibly demoralizing to the Ukrainian people to have its children sucked up and taken away and now are Russians. But also, is there a target at, if you take all the children away, who's the next, who's the next generation to fight? Well, it, it, it is on many, many levels, on many fronts, a, an act of genocide, because what it is doing it is it is kill a whole nation, a whole people, a whole tr- group, as, as it was originally envisioned in the aftermath of World War II during the Nuremberg trial period. And so what the effect of this is this Russification of children. They're not only deported, they're not only abducted, they're not only kidnapped, but then they're placed in these uh, anodyne sounding summer camps for lengthy periods, institutionalized, and sort of turned into little Russian soldiers and then paraded uh, on the first anniversary, let's say, of the of the invasion. They're paraded and uh, celebrated as, you know, heroes for Russia. What's what's most pernicious and upsetting about this, both to the children who are now brainwashed uh, into effectively not considering themselves what they are, which is Ukrainians, Ukrainian speakers, Ukrainian students, Ukrainian children of parents and families, is that it it, it basically re-educates them and uses them as propaganda tools for this uh, larger war effort of, of Putin. Many of the children that have been taken to Russia are babies, so they will have no historical marker to be able to be reunified. Right. This is a, a particularly cruel example of what what has been going on, uh, especially for infants, toddlers who have no uh, awareness of where they come from and who their families are and who their parents are. And so, uh, you know, the abduction of uh, of the youngest children with it, with limited Abilities to recall where they're from is, you know, suffice it to say, one of the most pernicious and cruel examples of this genocide. How's the conflict impacted adoptions in in both countries? Well, I can speak to Russian law first, and that is that Russian law uh, prohibits adoptions of children who are citizens of other countries uh, without the consent of the child's home country and suffice it to say, the child's parents. This uh, was conveniently overridden by a decree issued by Putin, streamlining the Russification, allowing Ukrainian children to be naturalized as Russian citizens, which would then enable them to override the, uh, the Russian statutory bar disallowing adoptions of other 
children from other nations. So this then facilitated their adoption into Russian families. Russian families were given all sorts of incentives to adopt children. Oh, by the way, uh, only the healthiest children. So they, you know, it's very, it's a shilling kind of picture that reminds us of events let's say at Auschwitz, where the unhealthy were separated from the healthy, and one gets one fate or and the other cohort gets another fate. So those who are, you know, blonde haired and healthy, um, as determined in these uh, concentration camps, filtration camps, then they have the ability to be adopted by by Russian families, oh, then get a nice little uh, paycheck, uh, you know, essentially a subsidy, an adoption subsidy. Um, and so, uh, and, and, you know, and so all of this puts a complete stop on the ability of Ukrainian families who are left behind to, to find the children, to identify names are changed, obviously. So they, they, they enter sort of this uh, zone of unknowability. We don't know where where they are, who they are adopted by. And it's really a, a violation of not just domestic laws, but international laws of all kinds, criminal laws, human rights laws, genocide laws. How has this impacted your own scholarship looking at international family law? Well, it, it has a, uh, a tangential relationship to my current research interest. It's sort of adjacent to what I've been uh, trying to sort of unpack and understand. And, and what I approach this, this issue of children from one country and their interactions when they cross a border and enter another country is I look at it as uh, in situations where the family of a child living in one, let's say, European Union nation crosses the border, let's say from Poland to Germany. And, uh, and then obviously they are now subject to, the family is subject to the, the rules and the regulations that are predominant in the new country, in the adopted country. as a wholly different situation than uh, an invading country preying upon families in order to uh, essentially uh, dismantle families uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a very invasive, very aggressive, very militaristic way. What I study is what happens to the families, the family ties, the parent-child ties with respect to language, with respect to family bonds and affinities, if the state that they've moved to assimilate to uh, the, the norms, the cultural standards, the educational standards. Uh, and it takes away from the parents their right to the care and the custody of their children that they would have enjoyed in a different way in their country of birth of the child. And so that's what I've been studying a little bit. And, and what's going on in, of course, Russia and Ukraine is, of all, is, is a much, much more complex, much, much more disturbing, much, much more pernicious type of relationship between the new state and the, and the family uh, which includes parents and children and extended family members. Uh, what's going on in Russia is is a sui generic type of uh, story of its own, and it's really allied with it's sort of aligned with. Uh, I would say that the perhaps the closest analog to uh, what is happening in Ukraine uh, to what has happened in, in our in our nation in Canada would be, of course, uh, the way that uh, that indigenous children were abducted from their tribes and then permitted to be adopted by uh, non-indigenous families and horrific what happened in Canada in particular, uh, residential schools just for the children who lost all of their ties and connections 
arguably that was tantamount to genocide, but it did and it didn't occur in times of war. Obviously, there were many, many scenes of battle between uh, the white settlers and the colonists and and the indigenous tribes, who had, the First Nations who had been in those places. I think that's the closest analog that I can discern in terms of a prior history in this in this country in Canada to what what is what has occurred over the last well certainly since February 22 uh since the invasion occurred but it has its antecedents in the uh events of post Crimean invasion uh in 2014 well thank you for bringing all this to us i appreciate it yeah my pleasure i is i can't say this was a pleasurable conversation it's a disturbing and a chilling conversation and i hope that someday uh, there will be some justice for the families and for the nation of Ukraine uh, with respect to the, the the forces that have unleashed this this process upon the Ukrainian children and their and their parents and their family. Definitely. Well, thank you for coming in. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, see you around. Thanks for joining us for the Explainer and a whole new season of Explaining. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uges. Today's show was brought to you by Miami Law's upcoming book event with Professor Jonelle Newman's book, How to Set Up and Run a Law Clinic, March 6. For more information, visit www.law.miami.edu.